This is an audio story for the digital edition of Landscope magazine. I'm Tanya Derlich, and in this episode, we focus on the important conservation work being done to protect seabird colonies on Western Australia's Houtman Abrolhos Islands National Park. It's not very often you meet someone who has dedicated 30 years of their life to studying seabirds. But Dr Chris Sermon, a marine ecologist, has done exactly that. And he joins me today to chat about his work and his passion for these magnificent seabirds. For me, the journey started as a child um, with a picture in a book, a shell collecting book, with a boy who had a baler shell in his hand walking along Powerside Islands. Well, that's what it said on the, on the photo. And I saw that and I was beachcombing obsessed as a child and went, wow, I really want to go there. That looks really cool. Anyway, as it turns out, that was a group of islands that was just off Geraldton, the Helpman Abrolhos, um, where I grew up. So I just then became obsessed with trying to get out there. So that passion was about the landscape. Once I got out there, it was just, you know, realised that as a, you know, young, up, you know, up-and-coming primary school marine biologist, <laughs> you were just going, this is incredible, you know, this is off Geraldton. It's so different from the coast. It's so incredibly fantastic, you know, you're surrounded by coral reefs. Um, so it's spectacular. And the beach coating was, you know, stupendous. Yeah. So that triggered it. And so I then went to university and I was doing a marine biology degree at UWA. I knew that when I started doing postgraduate studies, I wanted to do something at the Abrolhos. I thought it was a perfect spot. And the birds came later. It wasn't because I was obsessed with birds or, you know, I was interested in them, but I didn't realise that we had incredible seabird populations out at the Helpman Abrolhos. And I started doing a bit of research back in the olden days when you had to go to library and look up things through scientific indexes manually or the analogue era. Um, got a few papers together and I was going, okay, well, there seems to be a few gaps in the knowledge here and, you know, a couple of species that no one's done any work on and, and then just did a pros and cons for the species out there and what would be able to get access and, you know, came up, started working on lesser noddies. There was a big knowledge gap there. There were, you know, tens of thousands of them, apparently. They nested in trees. That's unusual. Um, they seem to be consistently nesting each year. Year. So it was just like, OK, I'll go and take that as a proposal and see where it leads. At the beginning, I didn't think I was going to be there forever. And now I'm, you know, sometimes I get anxious when I think I won't be able to be there forever, you know, in a sense. Yeah, I love the place, you know, it's absolutely in my bones now, well and truly, yeah. So let's see how well you know your seabirds. Tell me what you hear when I play this. So what we've got is the lapping of waves in the background, <laughs> but on top of that is the um, characteristic sound of the lesser noddy, which is one of the threatened species that nests only at the Helpman Abrolhos. And you've got an adult bird there doing a little bit of an alarm call, and then a, there was a little chick there, but there's also a juvenile bird which had a throatier sound in response to that adult's call. And that, imagine 20, 30,000 birds doing that all at once it's a cacophony of sound in the mangroves yeah it's fantastic yeah and at different times of year it's a different sound based on whether the chicks are old or young yeah amazing um here's another for you (laughs) (laughs) 
So that's a sooty turn. That's a sooty turn, adult. Yes, calling. When you walk in into the, the edges of the rookeries of sooty turns, they come and approach you and fly all around your head. So the, the birds nesting have been the ones that are, are loafing and they come and, you know, basically flying straight up to you and calling. One more. One more. That's well, my favourite. Yeah, that, they are. They've, they've got a, a soft place in my heart. So that's a wedge-tailed shearwater calling during the day to other birds. So when a bird, they, they nest in burrows. Um, so I sort of tend to call them rabbits, burrowing, burrowing seabird. But they're quite vulnerable because they only deep, lay their eggs in the bottom of these quite long burrows. They could be a metre and a half, two metres long. And they only can do that in uh, sandy areas. So all the sandy areas that they help on a brothel are literally covered in shearwater burrows. So they're very, very vulnerable sites. But during the day, usually at night time, there's a lot more of that calling going on. But during the day, if one of the birds starts arcing up and calling for whatever reason, probably heard me walking and that and going, oh, the neighbours up for some reason. They start calling and then the neighbours go, oh, better get into this and start calling back. But they're very ghostly. I call them ghost birds. And so at night when you take people who have not, volunteers who have not worked on these guys before, and they're actually quite large for the birds we work on, 350, 400 gram birds, so they're quite stocky, heavy, you know, heavy birds. And when they start calling at night, people are just like, what, what was that? <laughs> you know, especially with the wind in the background. And yeah, they're fantastic birds, yeah. But they're unfortunately also, you know, vulnerable when they're on the land because of the nesting sites, but at sea they're the ones that pick at plastics on the surface of the water. So quite often a lot of the species around the world are picking at those plastics, ingesting them, then regurgitating them for the chicks, and it's the chicks that end up basically with their guts full of plastics and not able to digest any food and starve to death from that process. What can someone like me do to help with these birds? Pretty simple things at home is, you know, sorting your recycling and, and trying to reduce the amount of waste you use and that. And I know it's easy for us in a developed country to, to do that when a lot of the sources are coming from elsewhere. But every little bit helps and, and trying to reduce the amounts of plastic we use and stuff like that. And certainly when, you know, you go down to the beach and if something blows out, go and grab it because, you know, when it ends up in the water or on the coast and it breaks down, it breaks into smaller particles and those smaller particles may be mistaken by some birds. Some species of albatross eat uh, flying fish eggs and so it's thought that some of the plastics look similar to flying fish eggs and so they start picking at that um, like nurdles and things like that. What is it that draws you to the islands? It is the landscape. Like it's, you know, I love the place. I get very excited when I go down there. It is like anywhere you keep going to a lot, though. Like you get very familiar with it and look forward to going to it. When it you know, people's annual holidays and stuff like that. Um, but the landscape blows me away. It is, you know, it's just incredible to find something like that situated so far south because it's over the horizon. It's been out of sight for so long, and yeah, just the fact that. Um, you've got this, you know, this mixture of, you know, temperate and tropical species of, you know, on the land you've got all the, the most incredible seabird colonies I've ever seen and I've been to a lot of islands in, in my time and, um, and underwater, you know, quite a high diversity for where it is really. I mean, it's not, you know, in the Indo-Pacific region itself, which is a high diversity of corals and fishes and, and marine creatures, but it's so far south, but it's still got hundreds of species of fish and, and corals and things like that all all working together in, in a system. And a lot of that is, 
you know, due to the to the winds forming the reefs and and the fact that the seabirds are now nesting there. That's a, that's a nutrient subsidy that's been brought in from the hundreds of kilometres. They'll forage four five hundred kilometres away, and all those nutrients that are deposited as bird poo, guano, then you know runs off into the in the into the marine system and subsidises coral growth and stuff like that. So they're essential for that. It's amazing because I've been out there thousands of times, but I'm still getting surprised. There's always new things you see and catch yourself and go, wow, yeah, this place is amazing, yeah, and we've got to look after it. And over the years, you've fostered a working relationship with Anthony Desmond, Regional Leader Nature Conservation at the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions, whom you've known since you were a young boy and share a similar love for the islands. Yeah, I've known him my whole life and you know there have been periods of time where we haven't um, spent much time together but I remember you know going out to his farm you know at primary school at high school you know and then he went off and, and did his conservation work but I remember we were up I can't remember where it was but he introduced us to Gould's League Anthony was the one who introduced to Gould's League and he had all these really cool stickers you know and there's this nature sort of conservation um, group yeah that he introduced to the school and so, yeah, and more recently, of course, with his role up at um, DVCA in Geraldton, yeah, he's been a really great ally um, to have, you know. He, he uh, tells you like it is. <laughs> and, that, but we, and he's actually come out and helped out on one of the, one of the field trips quite a few years ago, and that was, that was hilarious because I remember us getting stuck in the mud in the mangroves, and yeah, it's just, yeah, great. Hours of fun. <laughs> so I've known Chris... For a long time, we were at primary school together in Geraldton, so uh, we knew each other from there. But Chris's expertise is is pretty clear in this, particularly in the seabird area, and so his name keeps on popping up any time you look at seabirds at the Abrolhos. His name will pop up as one of the experts. So it's not too much of a stretch to reach out to him and say, "Hey, nice to catch up with you again." How about we have a chat about this because it's an important thing for us to get right in our management. Chris has spent long enough working on the species that he's worked across to really go down to quite fine detail on exactly what the issues are facing some of these species. So when you see a decline, sometimes you spend a lot of time just going theorising about what might be the issues. And it's very hard as a land manager practitioner to actually get the time to delve down into those details and work out exactly what's happening. But Chris has already done that for us. He's done all the work on where they feed, what they feed on, what happens with currents, what sort of particular climate models might produce, which response, all those sorts of things. And then looked at even more detail, for example, with the lesser noddies, why are the mangroves dying off, that sort of stuff. So some of that detailed knowledge we wouldn't get the chance to do um, because it's just over 30 years, such a long time to build up a knowledge base and to really get to understand the ups and downs of cycles of populations and then delve into each of those ups and downs to work out why they're really successful or why they're really poor in particular years. One of the critical steps that we've been undertaking over the last 18 months, two years, is a management planning process. And that outlines for us all the values, the threats to those values, and the things that we will actually do on the ground to conserve those those values and look after them. And so, for example, with the seabirds, there are a range of areas that are particularly high value that the management plan will talk about 
what the what techniques we can use to protect those and what we will do. So it'll outline some of the things that we'll do, say, in the realm of monitoring to make sure that we are um, aware of what is happening with species, but it goes down to more detail and then there's a cascade of, deta- of plans underneath that that will go into even more detail about particular areas that we might say have very high values that we need to particularly manage particularly closely and that might involve things like putting in a boardwalk for example to protect uh, breeding burrows or ensuring that visitors walk through a particular way in a protected area rather than stomping through the bush or whatever. So uh, that management planning process is really important in just giving us some guidance about the things that we do. And they go out for public comment and so people can review them and say, well, you've forgotten about this or this is an area I think that you could do something slightly different in. How about you look at that? And then we review all those comments and and modify the plan as, as necessary. And that then sets for us series of things that we'll do over the next 10 years at the Abrolhos and how we'll manage those values and make sure that they still are there for generations and generations and generations. The experience of seeing a massive influx of birds uh, flying into the nests and out of the nests, those sorts of experiences are, are pretty awe-inspiring and particularly when you're sitting on a nice beach next to a nice bit of blue water, you know, it just adds that little touch. But also the the ability for people to research and study these things um, in a in a site that is quite amazing and being able to get down to the detail and crawl through the mud and and measure how many birds are there and what size they are and all those things we need to be able to retain that as well and that means we've got to look after things properly and it means we've got to give some thought to what impacts people have and how we can slow those impacts down so that it in five generations there's still these things there for us to see and to study and experience and passionate people make a massive difference uh, they they do devote their time they do spend 30 years working in an area and gaining that depth of knowledge that means anytime I've got a question I can give Chris a yell and say what is happening with this species why is it doing that what do we need to do of management he knows it He's got it at the back, in his back pocket, ready to roll out and, and is happy to provide that info. So hopefully he keeps going for another 30 years. I suspect he will be out there for an awfully long time and will be greyer and older and grumpier, but it'll be, yeah, great outcome. 30 years is pretty impressive. Another 30 will be fantastic. Well, yeah, I hope so. I don't know about 30. That's a, that's a long, long time. <laughs> At the end of the day, what would make you happiest with everything you've done with this research and study? Is it that you've educated people, raised this as an issue, or is it just personal satisfaction? There's definitely personal satisfaction. I, you know, I do get a kick out of going out there and doing the research. I love the research and, and you know, like, for example, the tracking stuff we do puts, you know, such a focus on on how incredible some of these small creatures flying in crazy way of getting around in strong winds and delivering food to to chicks and, and they get back to the nest site and the nest is, is bouncing up and down in the 30 knot winds and they're still able to change you know positions with their little tiny chick or their egg and the egg doesn't fall out. In all your years of research what has been the most interesting discovery you've made? 
What's been really unexpected and probably naively so is that, you know, 30 years down the track, most of the birds I've banded are still nesting with the same partner at the same nest site at the same time of year and the eggs almost the same size. You know, it's incredible to think that something that weighs 100 grams mates for life and has a home, a place that it comes back to. Do you think these birds you've tagged recognise you and are waiting for you to return? I, I know this. Um, I wrote a paper about this in Animal um, Behaviour about alarm responses of lesser noddies particularly. And so I'd know a bird would start squawking at me from a, a greater distance than others and then going, oh, I reckon that one's got a band. And that was back in the days where I had to catch the birds to read the band now. I don't need to touch the birds. Everything's remote for us. We have coloured tags on them so we can read those. So it's a lot better for the birds. But they still do squawk and carry on. So And, you know, of course, you want to re- reduce your impact and that. But it was funny because that got picked up in a, in a book on animal behaviour um, from all these different creatures around the world. And I can remember someone saying, I read about something about your noddies in a book like that that was picked up from that paper about how these birds recognise Chris coming back. Oh, he's here again. Chris, Chris. He's here to save the day. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about that, but yeah. (laughs) This audio story was brought to you by Landscope magazine. Published by Western Australia's Department of Biodiversity Conservation and Attractions. For more information and to subscribe to the print edition, visit shop.dbca.wa.gov.au.